ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to these go to eleven. Once again, I'm Nathan Bell. Joining me as always, Zach Bartle. Zach, what's going on, man? Dude, I'm feeling sheepish over here in light of uh, our topic today. Uh, that I spent the last 25 minutes reading uh, in, in different Reddit threads about uh, different methods to get the TV to automatically turn on when you're building your own Pac-Man arcade machine, which is <laughs> something I'm pursuing at the moment. <laughs> well, that is definitely in reference to our guests we're going to have on. But before we get there, first, uh, we want to mention um, Mission Aware because we love those guys over there. They put out great products. Um, so make sure you check out missionaware.com. Um, they're always putting up new stuff, always coming up with new ideas. Uh, Zach, you recently, um, over at Gut Check, had your T-shirt uh, published on your little page there on Mission Aware. And then uh, you can get your book through them too, correct? They've got the smoking guide, yeah, smoking I think. Guide. I don't know if it's up. I don't know. I don't know. What's going on with Mission Aware? You say we love them. Uh, I like them. You know, I, it's... <laughs> It'll be love when I get a, another, uh, you know, when I get when I get a nice fat uh, gift card in the mail. Then then I'll love them. <laughs> my go. love can be bought, and I would like my love to be bought. So. <laughs> nice, nice. But uh, not only do you have tons of books over there um, with Gut Check. Recently, uh, you published um, two of them, really, because you have um, the the Clinch book, um, which is an adult uh, nonfiction or an adult fiction book that you just. Um, put out what was it about two months ago you finally released it paperback yeah yeah it's a young adult book yeah yeah so um definitely check out clinch if you listen to the clinch podcast um zach does a whole read through of the book which is fantastic so definitely pick that up but you just recently put another one out um and it's up on amazon which is um the cobra kai strike for strike hard no mercy and it's a book on um, sanctification. So, Zach, I want to give you a, f- a little bit of time here to, to talk about that one and just uh, hit the high points for the listeners. Right. And this is why you have half a dozen uh, podcasts so that That's you right. have, you know, built in platform for, for self-promotion. It's actually it's very, very recently been put out, uh, meaning that it comes out tomorrow. Um, nice. So it can be pre-bought. Uh, so you're hearing this uh, like an hour away from, if you're listening to it when we drop, uh, from, from when it's uh, available. But you can, you can hit pre-buy on Cobra Kai and Sanctification. And let me tell you how incredibly well this book is doing, Nathan. Um, it was the number one, number one new release in everybody's favorite category on Amazon, which is television, criticism, and history. Nice. And I know a lot of people were vying for that position. There was a book about Mr. Rogers. Uh, there was a book by that one guy on the Carol Burnett show whose name escapes me. And so, uh, yeah, that's it's it's basically just uh, dominating uh, that one small sub 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 category. Uh, but the book is about uh, the idea that in our sanctification, uh, particularly in the mortification of the flesh, we are. We tend to be Daniel LaRusso's, yeah. meaning that we are whiny and sniveling <laughs> uh, and always trying to talk our way out of things and make friends and, and stuff uh, when we really need to be Johnny Lawrence's. We need to be Cobra Kai. Uh, so I go through, uh, it's about 20,000 words, just ebook only. It's a short read. But I go through uh, sh- Strike First and Strike Hard and No Mercy, quoting a lot of John Owen, a lot of Spurge, a lot of Thomas Watson. And then uh, I, I take people through, and this is a deep cut. You tell me if you remember this. Right. Through the quick, the quick silver method of yes. training. <laughs> which is if your enemy cannot see, he cannot fight. If your enemy cannot breathe, he cannot fight. And if your enemy cannot stand, he cannot fight. And that's, that's uh, from Mr. Terry Silver in uh, the worst movie ever made, The Karate Kid Part 3. <laughs> Uh, but still part of the Karate Kid and, and Cobra Kai mythos, so that's you right. got you got plenty of credence. That's right. Uh, so yeah, that's that's uh, something you can pick up if you haven't already pre-bought it um, on Amazon or on BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, and I haven't even linked to it on on Gut Check. It's just a, a little fun uh, ebook thing, and and it harkens back to simpler times when a lot of people were like, hey, you can actually just make an ebook of something and still do well with it, right. which turned out you really can't, but oh well, <laughs> I'm trying it anyway. It's just for fun. Nice. Nice. Well, we will uh, definitely link that up when we do the show notes tonight, so um, I'll make sure that happens. 
Um, don't want to uh, belabor our guest and, and have him put off there because um, I'm really excited um, to talk with uh, Gret Glyer uh, about um, global poverty. Gret, how are you doing today? I'm good. Uh, very pleased to be here and uh, very pleased to hear that there's another Karate Kid fan, although I'm wondering if you really think the third movie was worse than the fourth movie. Uh, well, there's no fourth movie. Shut your mouth. <laughs> we just don't talk about it. <laughs> you mean, are, are you talking about a movie with some Zen bowling in it? Uh, I've never heard of it. Nope. <laughs> oh, there was. <laughs> oh, man. Nice. I, I, I will say this before we get into things depressing, and that is that my son, Calvin, who's 10 years old, I asked him, what do you, he's at a locker for the first time in his life. Just first day of school today. I said, what do you want to put in your locker? He's like, I want a Cobra Kai poster. <laughs> so, proud. Little, got a little Cobra Kai poster going and, uh, and a little Mewtwo Pokemon guy. So that, that made me happy. Nice. Nice. Well, I want to um, give a little bit of background um, because, uh, Gret, I'm going to let you kind of give your bio in just a couple minutes here. But um, we first had a recommendation from uh, one of our listeners who follows us. Uh, about how you should join the podcast, and then even before I had a chance to kind of get up and respond and and uh, get in contact with you, uh, one of the former hosts of the show, Steve Hartland, started engaging with you on some things on Twitter, um, which was interesting. And so um, after I kind of looked in and saw that little engagement, I was like, yeah, sure, why don't we go ahead and um, have him on? And so you and I got in contact that way. Um, you know, when people ask how we get our guests and things like that. Um, it's amazing how uh, things just kind of spiral and, you know, we really, we are connected to the World Wide Web where we can get a hold of um, so many people in so many different ways. And I find that really interesting. Um, and of course, um, I know that on this podcast, Zach, you and I have talked about um, social justice before and we've talked about, you know, being the body of Christ and actually going out there and, you know, putting our faith into action. And so I thought this would be interesting just to widen people's minds and perspectives on this topic of global poverty. Um, so, Gret, why don't you go ahead and just um, give our audience your background and uh, credentials, so to speak, so that um, they have an understanding of where you're coming from. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. And again, thanks for having me on. I'm glad that we can have this discussion. I, I love the premise of your show that you talk about things that are not talked about on Sunday morning. I, I'd love to ask you a few questions about that later on. But as far as my background goes, I uh, so I'm 28. I graduated from college in 2012. I spent a year working at a just a, a corporate job where I was working like 12 hours a day, really didn't enjoy it, but I performed really well. I was, I was promoted super quick. And then I just said like, I, I can't do this. This isn't for me. I gotta, I gotta find something else. And so that's when I moved to Malawi, Africa. I, I lived there from 2013 to 2016. I did all sorts of poverty alleviation work while I was there. It was, it was very meaningful and it was a complete change, like a complete 180 from the from the corporate life, and uh, I really enjoyed that. But one of the one of the things that I found out while I was over there was one, poverty, global poverty exists. Like there's a lot of poor people, and they're really, really poor. And I, I don't think I quite understood that or quite grasped it until I actually lived over there for a significant amount of time. So I so the first thing was I realized it existed, and then the second thing was I realized that it was really hard to communicate the realities of poverty back to my friends in the states. Like I, I was trying to tell them about some of the things I was seeing, and most of the times, most of the time when that happened, I got this kind of like glazed over look. Uh, it's just too hard to comprehend. It's like describing a, a different planet or something um, when, when when you have such a, a wealth disparity between that side of the world and this side. And so, okay, so then I'm in this spot where I, I really want to uh, do good. I want to bring my friends into doing good, and I have to figure out a way to do that. So that was when I started and I founded an organization called Donor C, Donor S-E-E. It's an app and you can go to DonorC.com and check it out. And it's a way for people to see where their money goes when they donate. They, they can see how very small amounts of money make a gigantic impact in people's lives, uh, typically people who are living in extreme poverty. And so uh, Donor C launched two years ago and I run it to this day. We're in over 50 countries and um, it's a it's a very gratifying thing to be a part of. And I also... 
Oh, also, the last thing I'll, I'll throw out there is I just, I think the reason I got invited onto this podcast is because I just launched my own podcast, the Gret Glyer podcast. And on that podcast, I talk about this, like global poverty and those kinds of things all the time. Nice, nice. Um, so let me ask you, Gret, what, what was it about what you were doing? I mean, like what specifically was making you unhappy in the job you were doing to, to kind of force such an extreme change to move over um, to the other side of the world and start with, um, you know, helping with uh, relief efforts and things like that? Um, I mean, you know, normally, like I think of, you know, 20 somethings and they're unhappy, you know, they, they tend to switch into a new job and there's kind of this process. You almost had more of an extreme change. And I'm just curious of how, how that came about in the process you made in, in kind of jumping over there and doing that. Yeah, well, that's a good question. I, I don't think that my experience was uncommon. I just think my action was uncommon. Like, I think there's a lot of people who kind of get, get thrust into the quote unquote real world and they find it very uncomfortable or they or they're just they're just like unsettled by it but i think over time they just kind of learn to accept it for what it is and you know it's just part of life and, and you just kind of go with it and uh for whatever reason i just uh i you know i think i don't want to i almost like don't want to like say it was me I, I think i was fortunate enough to be in a place where i could i could drop everything and go overseas not everyone has the ability to do that or is in the position to do that um like one of the things about about my my place uh, at that moment was all of my student loans were completely paid off. My parents uh, were kind enough to do that. So like I was in a position to go overseas and I was able to do it and I found an opportunity to do it. And I, you know, there was just like all these things that lined up. So I think there's a lot of people who feel that, that like unsettledness and, and like, Oh man, I really wish I could be doing something more meaningful. And I think when it comes down to what was unsettling me, it was this idea that I was doing a job where if I didn't show up the next day, like almost nothing would change. They would replace me with another, you know, another person. And then that person would come along and do the same job. And I thought, you know, I, this isn't gonna, this is not going to fulfill me for the next 20 years of my life. So. Hmm. Hmm. Um, now I, you said you just actually started a podcast on this. Um, how many episodes have you gone into um, so far? Uh, so we, I think we just did our 10th episode and some of that is recordings from other podcasts. Some of that is me interviewing other people and some of that is uh, just me solo talking um, into the mic. So it's a, it's a combination of everything. So yeah, right. but pretty new. Nice. Nice. Um, talk to, talk to us about what you experienced overseas and some of the change and things like that, that, that occurred and happened. I mean, when you got off, was it, you know, huge culture shock or was it, you know, something where things were taking time to develop as you were getting into the culture and, and, you know, learning the things that you were learning, seeing the things that you were seeing. Talk to us about that overseas experience. Sure. So when I first got over there, uh, initially I went over there to be a math teacher. So I was teaching high school math at an international Christian school. And it was just a high school students. Half of them were like upper class Malawian students. And the other half were um, like a missionary kids or, uh, or kids from the like embassy kids or whatever. And so it was just, uh, it was like a one of the things that was shocking to me, I was going to the poorest country on the planet and, you know, everyone has seen movies. I assumed like there'd be lions and grass thatched huts. And like, that's all I, I assumed I'd be living in, in something like, like, I don't know why, but that was like my, my conception. And so when I got over there and I realized I had like high, not high speed, but I had internet, I had, uh, I had hot running water. I had electricity. I had all these different things. I realized that there was more development in these parts of the world than I assumed. Um, and so, yeah, originally I went over there to be, to be a math teacher. And, um, as I spent more time over there, there were, there were several like key aha moments that helped me realize, like when I first got over there, I almost didn't realize how poor, the, I, I still didn't realize, like truly grasp how poor the world was. And so, um, the, the longer I spent over there, I had a few key moments. Like I remember there was this one, there was this one little girl I met, her, her name was Emily and she must've been five or six or seven years old at the time. Um, and I would go into this village every Friday and I, I would play soccer with the people there. And that was like a very fun thing that I would just do every Friday. But there was this little girl who would come and watch and someone told me her story. And, um, you know, it's, it's a really sad story. Her, unfortunately, um, her mom uh, got really sick, uh, had gotten really sick several years ago. And um, 
a friend of mine, his name was Blessings, another Malawian guy, he sent a message to his friend in the States saying, hey, this girl Emily's mom is really sick and she needs to go to the hospital, so would you mind sending me $20 so I can take Emily's mom to the hospital? And the guy in America, not understanding the seriousness of the situation, he said, he said no. He just thought, you know, he didn't really know Blessings that well and he thought that Blessings was just kind of, you know, he was doing... There's a, there's a certain reputation in regards to corruption when it comes to sending money over to people in Africa. And so he, he said no. Okay, so six months later, uh, this guy who Blessings had messaged in the States went on a short-term mission trip to Malawi and took a tour of this village. So Blessings was giving this, giving this guy a tour through the village and along with everyone else there. And uh, they come across this lady who's just kind of like writhing in pain on the ground. And, and Blessings didn't mean to like bring them in front of this lady but it just so happened and so the guy says wait who is this person like why is she on the ground and of course it was emily's mom and blessings explained that because she didn't have twenty dollars to go to the hospital she has just been in pain this whole time so okay then then they spend the the entire short-term mission trip becomes around like helping this lady helping emily's mom get better so they get her a mattress and they get her a bunch of medicine they take her back and forth to the hospital and at the end of it they've done everything they that they can do within that two-week time frame so then they they hop on a plane they go home they buy her a bunch of medicine and stuff to, to take with her and and their their plane lands and within 24 hours unfortunately emily's mom passed away and and emily's dad was no longer in the picture so that was i met this girl emily who's like a real life person whose mom died because she couldn't afford 20 dollars and that was that was one of those that was one of the first of many aha moments where i I realized that that things in in the rest of the world uh are very very different and and just like totally outside of my ability to understand them as someone who grew up in in this part of uh of the world. Hmm. Now, when you talk about uh, the kind of self oversight that, that takes place when somebody gives money and then sees a result, how do you how do you pair up with the right nationals mm-hmm. to like get that done? I assume part of the deal is low overhead. You haven't said that, but it just sounds like kind of that's that's part of the the model. Am I right? Yeah, uh, like that's, I, that's I right. get forty yeah. bucks, thirty eight of it isn't going to printing you know, glossy posters and paying people's salaries. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you laugh, but I, I belong to a denomination where I'm starting to really worry about a lot of our giving toward this kind of stuff, how mm-hmm. much of it really gets there. But uh, how, right how do you... worry about that. Yeah, well, how do you connect with... How, how do you, you know, short-circuit that and, and, and end-run that and, and connect with the, the right people? Because, you know, that happens out of just institutionalization and you know a slow slide despite good intentions how do you avoid winding up with you know funding people who might just wanted to get a hold of money and you know hey look at me i feel better now you know right, so, i could yeah so what you're talking what you're referring to it's this it's this hierarchical structure that develops as as these org- as these charitable organizations get bigger and they get older so as more people as it like take a world vision for example or the red cross or whatever you want like literally any any of them that you want to pick um, as they get older they get bigger and they have more middle managers and there's more money that is being there's more oversight and there's more centralization and there's more bureaucracy and for every dollar that's spent they have to do all sorts of different things to make sure it's working but at the end of the day the people who are are, who are making decisions are living in America, and the people who are uh, being affected by those decisions are living on the other side of the world. And then, on top of all that, you've got uh, you've got compassion just being completely extracted out of the equation, right? So people aren't the per- the person who's compassionate in giving the money. It first has to flow through a giant organization, but before it ends up in someone's hands. So, and and the people who are executing on the aid on the other side of the world, they're just a hired hand. And it's unless the organization's called compassion. Uh-huh. And, yeah, and then and then yeah, <laughs> and, and then you have uh, you. And so actually, that actually brings up like a, another point that we could talk about, but. Um, but branding is is basically what what charities have become extremely good at. It's it's their it's their best thing that they can do because their brand is what determines whether or not you give to them, and almost nothing else. Like the effectiveness, the uh, level of oversight, the transparency. Like really, nothing matters besides besides how you feel about the brand. And so, if you have a brand called Compassion that feels really good, and you can give to them and um, not hold them as accountable as maybe they should be held. Okay, um, but okay. So you asked about how we're different. So the what we talked about is there's this hierarchical structure that develops over time. What's cool about DonorSea and, and a lot of other 
companies that are, are being started nowadays is that they've developed this new kind of decentralized way to do things, right? So um, before, I'll, I'll, let me let me give you an example that people can really understand, and then I'll tell you how it applies to donorcy. So in the past, there was there used to be these really large taxi companies, and there would be a bunch of middle managers, and they would have taxis go all throughout New York, but there was one central office that was making the decisions for all of the taxis all over New York. And then Uber came along, and Uber said, we're going to create a platform where we're going to match up drivers with people who need rides. And because we're doing that, we're able to charge way less money and we're able to be way more efficient. And we're, we're gutting all of the unnecessary stuff uh, that was formerly part of this system. Um, and instead of having a giant, uh, instead of having a giant bureaucracy oversee each and every taxi, we're going to have the whole thing be regulated by the crowd. So someone goes on a ride and they give a five-star review and then you know whether or not that person is trustworthy in the future. Okay, so that's how, and there's all sorts of, you know, eBay is doing that, Airbnb, you name it. There's like 16 different types of these two-side marketplaces and they're all doing this in their different ways. So DonorC is a two-side marketplace in the same way. So there's people who post projects and then there's people who uh, who donate to those projects. And then we almost have like this third category of people that kind of do research on them and hold them accountable and write reviews for them. And and so through, but through all of that, we're able to take out a lot of the, like, first of all, I, as the CEO get paid $0. I have a, I have a Patreon where people support me, but I get paid nothing. And then um, we are like all of the hyper regulatory accounting stuff, the, the, the lawyers, like we don't have to do any of that stuff because we're completely circumventing traditional models and having money go directly from donors to recipients and then being regulated by the crowd. Okay, but how how do you? I mean, like, do people sign up then on the other end? So okay, if I'm yeah. if I'm in uh, you know Johannesburg or wherever I am, and and I'm in need of something, how how does that person find their way to you? Okay, so the best way to think about it is not not anyone can just like post a project, right? There would be huge problems with that if, if we allowed that. Um, so the way it works is people apply to post with our organization and usually they're part of some kind of grassroots organization or they're part of a larger organization like Cure International uh, is is one of the organizations that, that we work with. And so one of these organizations, they apply to post on DonorC. If they're approved, they get access to our donor base. Um, and so they go through this like rigorous application process. If they're if they make it through the process, then they're allowed to post their first project. Um, if when it gets funded, uh, people can vet whether or not it went through. And then at the end of the day, they if if they kind of make it through the crowdsourcing system, they can raise quite a bit of money on on a monthly basis. But yeah, so there's there's a whole application process that that goes into it. Okay, so okay. Yeah, and so the people who are being helped are not the ones who are signing up to post projects. So there's storytellers. They're the ones who are posting projects, and they're the ones who are on the ground, basically on the ground aid workers, just like I was when I was in Malawi. I see. Now, you're, you're a Christian, I assume. Mm-hmm, yes. And when, when you talk about, you know, I, you, you didn't say this is the, you know, the new model that's going to take over. But, you know, when you talk about Uber and, and Airbnb, I kind of, I think we're moving toward this. People connecting over, you know, networks rather than through these sluggish and, and bloated organizations. I assume th- the vision you have, and maybe I'm wrong, is that this kind of fills a gap, takes a place of a world vision type thing, but not a um, life missionary type situation. Like like someone who's actually working for a mission agency, I, I know a number of people, somebody right now who's in Thailand, several who are in South America, four or five who are in Kenya. Um, rather than replacing them, this would actually become, in a sense, a resource for our missionary. Is that right? Yeah, so yeah, it's meant to support people who are on the ground doing like the nice. hard, gritty work. That's like it's in, it's totally meant to, and that's like that's what actual charity is is like being in front of a person, helping them, having a relationship with them, not kind of calling the shots from a air conditioned office in California or whatever. Mm-hmm. Gret, um, this is freaking awesome. Oh, thank you. Now, I, when I googled you, uh, the first thing I saw was a HuffPo piece about like how this is the future of charity. Um, you didn't lead with that. Uh, yeah, you know, I, it just depends on the audience. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not a big fan of, of Ariana herself or the slant there, but I mean, when we're talking about, 
I mean, that's that's a big deal right now to to have been uh, highlighted in, by by you know new media as a new model kind of thing. That's that's really awesome. Um, yeah, and thank you. I appreciate that. One more thing I want to just say, my wife and I, there, there is an organization you mentioned that helps children, um, and, and I, we had collected a few, um, and they keep getting, like, canceled. Like, I assume that nothing horrible is happening to them, but they'll be like, uh, you know, Balete is no, no longer able to get the $15 a month, but you can switch over to, you know, whoever. Oh, yeah. um, and we just had another one where it was like, I don't know, either the guy said, I don't want any more money, or they left the area, or I don't know. And we were trying to think, like, what should we do? We don't want to do less. What should we do instead? And uh, I think I'm going to show this to my wife tonight. This is a, a very cool, a very, and a very intuitive, uh, as I'm clicking around here, uh, front end you have to it. Are you, a, are you a designer, or do you have to hire people to, to do this kind of stuff? Yeah, so we've we've I've pretty much hired everyone uh, to to do this kind of stuff. So we we hire a, a designer, and we have a few people who code the website, and we have a robust back end, um, and all all of that is done by a a team of very talented web developers, uh, which I am not. Okay. So yeah. so you're you're the guy who had the vision, and uh, what else does being CEO entail? Well, it's, I mean, so we're we're in fifty countries, but it's but we're also you know we're also pretty uh what, what do you call it like we run on razor thin margins our, you, you asked about this our, our average uh fee that that donors gets per transaction is 3.75 percent so like oh. we're yeah we're really really tight and um and so we it's it's not a huge staff and so what we're doing is uh i'm i'm working with the uh application process i i answer about a fifth of the customer service emails i do podcasts um and like uh, it's my it's it's you know it's it's an all-consuming uh, more than forty hours a week thing for me. I mean, I'm just working on it constantly. Yeah. So you're kind of the face of the company, and also kind of the I don't want to say the soul of the company. I don't know, Nathan. Help me out here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess in in this you know start you're you're the one that's that's overseeing. Every, I mean, you have your hands in everything. It's not like you're sending out and micromanaging. Uh, or, or not micro, you're not sending people out to micromanage stuff. You're in there making sure that all of this is coming together, right? It's not like we would typically think of a CEO who kind of sits in the big office and has those under him to, to keep going under him and keep going under him further and further until it gets down to the I bottom. Mean, you're, I mean, I'm you're assuming that you're in a, you're in an office, right? With like a, a mahogany desk and like a leather squatter. <laughs> yeah, my Lexus is parked right outside. <laughs> We had a thing where you could give to our church through your debit card, credit card, whatever bank, uh, and and you know use your your smartphone or whatever. And I think it was charging like three point seven five percent or something. So I mean that's that's almost like a standard fee for anybody who's taking a credit card. Um, Greg, you you had uh, mentioned I think in an email a uh, little show prep uh, uh, email that you had something to say about like effective missions uh, and giving versus like feel good. And I'd like to hear you kind of expound on that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's quite a lot to expound on in there. Um, so I, 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 where could I even start? I, I think the, the basic idea is, is um, there's a, there's a lot of people who want, who, who immediately learn about poverty and they want to do something about it. And they're very passionate about that. And that is the right reaction to have. Um, unfortunately, what happens is if you just kind of like run guns blazing into a situation, you might end up, you might think you might, you might think that you're about to do something amazing for people, but you actually might end up harming them. So like the, the classic situation is like, let's say that you, I mean, this is, this happens all the time. There's, there's, there's an orphanage in Uganda and they, um, message you on Facebook and they say, Hey, we're, we're an orphanage. I'm trying to take care of these kids. Would you mind sending me some money? And in your newfound passion, you send some money over to the other side of the world. And then they start asking for more money and more money and more money. And then over time you realize, Hey, they're, they've totally developed a dependency on you, right? There's like, this is never, this is a never ending thing. It's just going to, it's They're going to only want more money as time goes on. And the money is just going into a, into a constant, bucket that is never going to be satisfied. And then the other thing that you realize is, unfortunately, a lot of orphanages are 
kind of just fronts for people to make a living. Um, and, mm. and the, the, the kids who are supposedly orphans all have parents and they kind of just show up to, um, to get food every once in a while or, or what, what have you. And, and then sometimes there's even like worse things going on. Anyways, there's one of the things that's sad to me is, uh, and I, and I think, you know, I, I, we're all Christians. It sounds like one of, I, one of the things I think Christians should be the leaders on is, is giving effectively. And like, we should be talking about this and discussing it more than anyone else. Um, if we're, if we're truly going to, um, call ourselves disciples of Jesus. And so, yeah, one of the things that's sad to me is, is that, is that we're kind of flippant with our giving or, or we just kind of give and we're, we're not very critical of it. And, and the people who suffer when you do that are the ones who are most in need. And so by being critical and, and by caring about how your money is, is working, um, you can, uh, I just think that's a, that's a much more, that's actually like a much more compassionate way to help those in need. But yeah, I mean, this is a huge discussion. So. Yeah. Yeah. Now there have to be people who continue to do it well with the old model. Yes. Oh yeah. There's tons of people. It, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like no one's not doing it well. I, I, I think very, very highly of, of many different people in this space. And Donercy isn't the only, I, I don't think Donercy is going to be, be this completely disruptive thing that, that just takes down every charity out there. I, I think it might, um, it you might, can dream. Take yeah, it down. <laughs> I, I do hope that some of the larger, more gluttonous charities might, might get, uh, slimmer or trimmer or whatever, and, and they might become more effective and th- there might be more pressure on them to be more effective. Um, but yeah, the, the idea isn't to just like take down everyone. So anyways, I, I, uh, there's, there's lots of people who, who are doing things well. I, I think highly of people who are um, in the providing clean water for people. I think that space is, is, is really well done most of the time. Um, I think th- this, there's a, in a, a movement called effective altruism where they collect massive amounts of data on the way that they're performing their aid and they actually track over time whether or not it's effective and they have all sorts of um time tested units of measurement that they use to like you can test if a kid like you can provide you can send a book to a kid and then uh or or you can provide uh pay for a kid's education and then a year later you can test the literacy rate of that kid versus the kid the year before and you can see how effective your donation was and so there's different ways of tracking all these things and there's lots of people doing really amazing stuff out there especially also in like the anti-malaria space there's people providing bed nets uh deworming space the preventable disease space there's lots of lots of good stuff going on and so that's one of the things that um i i try and talk about a lot is is yeah okay there's lots of ineffective charity out there yeah like if you can't just go in guns blazing but also don't forget there's lots of really good charity out there there's lots of ways that you can help and and um i highly encourage people to get involved now one thing i'm really excited about in general in missions is a trend towards uh empowering nationals Hmm. um we have at my church two different refugee groups that are, are part of our church uh, and that um, from from Burma and from Nepal. And, you know, it's been really amazing to have the contacts. So when that big uh, earthquake hit Nepal, we didn't have to go, all right, let's send extra money to the denomination. They'll, you know, burn through a bunch of it just doing what they do and then send part of it. No, we, we Western unioned a big chunk of cash directly to a pastor that our Burmese or that rather our Nepali people knew. And I mean, they, they just, they lived with the guy, they knew him. And apart from the fee that it was, you know, to, to send the money Western union, it was a hundred percent. Here you go, take it and run. And it was so much more effective. I'm wondering what, what, if you know about what percentage of uh, the people who are uh, going through this application process with these projects uh, are nationals of the country where they are, and what percentage roughly are are westerners who are there as boots on the ground working yeah, so in order to be able to post like post on our platform, you need to have a bank account in like the u s Australia, Canada, or the u k so everyone okay. who is posting is a some kind of westerner, but all I would say nearly one hundred percent in fact i 'm pretty sure it 's one hundred percent works closely with with the on the ground local nationals um because otherwise they would 
be almost utterly ineffective. So, so uh, if if I'll give you an example, this is this is like one of the best uh, one of the people on our platform. If you have a chance, anyone who's listening, if you have a chance to support her, you should. Her name is Amy Hathaway, and you can search through her. She's often on our front page. What Amy Hathaway does is she works with people in Tanzania, and she comes across these uh, these babies who are on the brink of starvation. You can see their pictures, like you, their their ribs are exposed. Um, and they're just, they're often days, weeks, uh, away from, from dying because they don't have enough food. I mean, they're, it's really, really tough situations. And so what she does is she provides formula milk for these babies. One that does two things. One, it saves their life. Um, but then the other thing it does is it actually provides them like much needed nutrients that would have really bad, uh, long lasting, long-term effects later on. So if they don't get this formula milk at this time in their life, they're going to have mental problems when they're teenagers and adults and so forth. So she, she really changes these kids' lives. But then what do you do, right? That's not a sustainable solution. You've provided milk for a kid. The kid has survived another four, six, eight months. Then what? You have a baby. So, so Amy's solution is two parts. First, she saves a kid's life. And then she sets the kid up with a caretaker who, uh, she sets the kid's caretaker up with a business. Often the kid's parent has died and that's why the kid is in that situation. So she'll find an aunt or someone close to her in the family and say, Hey aunt, what we'd like to do is set you up with a fruit stand. You can provide income for yourself. Uh, you can run the whole thing yourself. And then, um, we'd also like you to take care of, of this kid as, as part of the, part of the deal. And so the, the, the aunt has buy-in um, to the whole process. And here's what's crazy. Amy's success rate with setting these people up with businesses is 80%, which is insane for a context like Tanzania, extremely poor and extremely unpredictable. And also you're, you're, you're dealing with a population with an extremely low uh, like literacy and education rate. So the the work that she's doing is some of the most amazing work I've ever seen anyone do in my whole life. And and uh, I highly encourage people to check out what she does. So that that's an example of people of of someone really effectively helping those in need. Now, are are people who are involved in this necessarily also sharing the gospel, or is it also maybe partially people who are aid workers uh, that aren't Christian missionaries? Uh, just doing things out of conscience. Yeah, so I, a lot of the the aid workers are are Christians, and and they have ministry and, and they evangelize in in different ways. But the projects that we post are are a, a religious. Like we, it's we have a lot of donors who come from all over the place who just want to help. Like the, the way I think about it is, it's an urgent situation, right? There are people who are dying. There are people who are starving. There are people like the, it's it's a really desperate kind of thing that we deal with, um, and so. Uh, we don't we don't do the the dangling the carrot thing. We're like, hey, come, we'll give you food, but then you have to. You, we're going to force you to sit down and listen to this gospel message. You know, we don't do that. Um, none of the people on our platform do that with our projects. So, um, yeah, really, it's it's a it's a anyone from any kind of background can come onto the platform and help the people. They're, the projects are just if you want to help someone in need, if you want to do uh, help help the poor, if you want to prevent someone from starving to death or whatever it is, this is the place, this is, this is a place for, for you to do that. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Now talk to me, cause uh, one of the things that uh, you had sent us as well, um, talking about, you know, um, effective charity versus like that feel good charity. Um, you also talked about um, comfort and meaning, um, you know, people in their, in their places of comfort and, you know, the, the correlation between doing something uh, meaningful with their lives. Uh, talk to us a little bit about um, that and, and what you were going for there. Yeah, so that's something that I have experienced in my own personal life is there's the, there seems to be a negative correlation between how comfortable I am and how meaningful I – like how excited I am to wake up and have a, like a – uh, how fulfilled I, I feel that day, right? So if I wake up and I spend and, and I go to a bunch of nice restaurants and I buy a new outfit and I drive, you know, a nice car, or hang out with, hang out on my friend's boat or something, yeah, that's like a nice, comfortable day. I'm, I, it's, I, I don't think that that's bad necessarily. But I also, like, I don't go to bed at the end of the day thinking, well, I'm, I'm like so fulfilled. Like that, that was like, that was just such a fulfilling, meaningful day. I never, I never go to bed that way. But the, uh, by contrast, if I have like a pretty tough day where um, you know some, something bad happens to one of my friends and I'm able to be there and comfort them, or something 
uh, on donor see happens and I'm able to step in and, and be a part of the solution there. Um, even though that that's more uncomfortable and even though I might sweat through it and even though I might miss a meal because I'm working so hard on something, uh, the, the meaning and the fulfillment that's derived from that, um, to me is a, is, is a better way to end the day than, than the, the comfort that, um, the, that, that would be in contrast to that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so it just, you know, to me, it really, it seems like you're talking, you know, when um, Solomon talks about, you know, in Ecclesiastes about, you know, acquiring all this stuff and it, it being meaningless, you know, and, you know, at the end of the day, you can't take this stuff with you. And so, you know, it's living, it's living your life out with people in a relationship with people and, and making sure that you're, you know, supplying those needs that are there that you're able to supply for those people you know i mean i think about you could live a completely meaningless life having all this money and you know donating 90 percent of it and never once having you know seen the results of what goes out there and what's done with it you know i mean i think one of the great things about what you do is you actually put people in contact with other people who who are able to you know see and, and get the results of of what's going on you know that's one of the things that I um I appreciated my aunt and uncle when they would do compassion as they would actually go overseas and visit these children that they would give money to and they would you know have opportunities to go into the villages and meet the people and and there's just more of an effective way of of wanting to donate more and wanting to give more when you actually see what is going on with the money that you're giving as opposed to just blindly giving it and so I like, I like how you do that and bring that in connection with people. Yeah, that's a very important part about what what donors he does, and, and and also just my personal beliefs on giving is there has to be some kind of relationship there. And so donors he's a, does one of the intentions behind donors is is to build the bridge that has kind of been stripped away by these really large bureaucratic layers. But I do want to ask you guys a question. So I think that you recognize. Um, you, you recognize some of what I'm saying in terms w- with materialism, and I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the American church and its relationship with materialism. Do you think it's? Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Um, thoughts about the American church and its relationship with—I I think that's too broad. I mean, the American church is so segmented, and you know, in certain corners, there's a prosperity gospel that equates what Jesus did with the achieving of, uh, you know, great material wealth. That's a travesty. Uh, on, an, on another end, there's, there's kind of a uh, Gnostic view that, you know, if I do go and have a nice day and coach my kids' little league team and um, go home to my house and hug my wife and eat dinner that I've wasted the day because I wasn't witnessing all day, uh, I am continually trying to combat that. Um, and I think most of the, most of the church is kind of in the middle where we, you know, mm-hmm. we have what we have. We thank God for what we have. We want to share out of what we have, uh, give out of, uh, both out of our surplus and out of our, uh, need. And, uh, you know, probably most of us have a little low level, uh, liberal guilt to boot, um, about, you know, <laughs> yeah. everything we own. I, I really, I don't know. I, I grew up in the eighties. Um, I'm, I'm a little older than Nathan. I'm, I'm older than you. I feel like I grew up during like the, the very time when Marty McFly's life getting better meant he got that truck. And, uh, that was very prevalent in the, uh, I think I might've just thrown something right over both of your heads. You, you're following me, right? Yeah. Back to the, back future. To the future. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought there might be a chuckle <laughs> or something. I don't know. I just blank stare. So I, I feel like the church was pretty bought into that at the time. It was kind of the the cultural norm and the church kind of just flopped on, on board. And I feel like we're moving in a good direction away from that now. Uh, the fact that people like, um, I'm not endorsing him or anything, but people like Shane Claiborne who are like, I'm going to go live under a bridge with homeless people, uh, get a lot of traction, get a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of interest in how do I um, kind of, I, you have the real extreme, I have to renounce everything and, and throw it out the window to be faithful, but better is just kind of how do I divorce my own, my own meaning, my own happiness from this pile of crap I'm accumulating. And I kind of feel like, I look at the, millenn- you're a millennial, right? I look at millennials and I feel like 
I feel pretty good about the future because yeah, they all have the newest iPhone or whatever, but my sense as a, a pastor who's, who's kind of getting a, a nice cross section of the population at the moment is that younger people are skewing more toward finding meaning in more meaningful things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find that to be true in the church too. Um, I'm fairly optimistic about the church and materialism. What do you, what do you think, Nathan? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think we're headed in a direction that is is causing people to be more aware of things that are going on around the world. I mean, if if we think back, you know, to that section of the '80s um, and earlier, where even even travel outside of the country was more rare, now you have more people, whether it's through school programs or mission trips or whatever taking these trips and seeing what the world is actually like. And so I think people are coming back with these visions. Um, Gret, I think you're right. I think the problem is people come back with visions and it's, it's almost like lighting a match. Um, if you don't have anything to sustain the flame, then it's just going to burn out quick. I remember being in high school and being in Jamaica and seeing all this poverty and Several of my friends like, oh, I'm just going to give everything up and come down here and live. And it's like, okay, well, what's your plan after that? Well, nothing. I'm just going to mm-hmm. live down here and be with the people. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, but what good's that going to do? You're going to be poor along with the rest of them. I mean, unless unless your goal is to come down here like and and work as a nurse so that you can help them. I mean, just to come down here and and live. And I think I think that's something that um, mission trips in particular need to do a better job with is is exposing people not just to the mission projects they might have, but to the reality of the day-to-day lives of these people. Um, But I think the access that people have to overseas and seeing what goes on is, is a positive thing. Is it, is it influencing so many people in a positive way to want to find out, okay, what's the right Avenue to give and help in this situation? Like you keep talking about, Greg, what is what is a sustainable way to help someone? Um, because that's one of the things that I remember facing constantly was, hey, we go down and we build a playground for someone and then it gets trashed and torn to pieces. And so then you're, the next group that comes down is also rebuilding that same playground that we just rebuilt for them. So, so what's going to be a more meaningful thing to do? Um, you know, for for these kids and helping them and, and doing something that's going to last and and move them into a future. And I remember one of the things that we saw when we were down there was uh, a trade school was actually being built for specifically for orphanages. So kids could come and they could learn um, how to fish. They could learn how to uh, sew or how to mend. They could learn how to hunt or how to do these things that were necessary for the survival of the community. And so they were learning how to get beyond where they were right there into, you know, into living in the future. And I think, I think that's something that people are learning. And, and thankfully, I think that's something that the church is learning too. We don't just go in and dump money on the problem. We go in and we show people how to get above the problem themselves so that they can sustain and live through it into the future. Everybody's mm-hmm. just completely bowled over by your comment, Nathan. <laughs> I don't know if that's I, good I or have, bad. <laughs> I have an observation. And I have a couple more questions. Observation is this. You both say aunt instead of aunt. And that sounds super, <laughs> super bougie. And if you're talking about poverty, uh, you actually come across like a monocle-wearing, caviar-slurping uh, douchebag. So maybe change that up. Um, <laughs> but the question is, um, one, first of all, are you married? Or do, you have, do you have a family at home that's... that's uh, like really buying into this stuff and doing along with you or what's, what's your situation family wise? I'm getting married in two and a half weeks. Oh, wow. Congrats, man. Thank you. Yeah. I'm very excited. Um, Are you sure about it? I mean, you're, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, I'm very sure. (laughs) My question is that I'm, yeah, it's just, uh, it's kind of coming up fast and, and it is a surprising thing to hear or come out on a podcast, uh, like an hour in or whatever. (laughs) Um, and then the other thing is, uh, 
when, when somebody signs up for, for this, they get approved or whatever, is part of the deal that they have to have the capability, um, techno- technologically speaking, to provide the, I don't want to say proof, but like the, the results of this stuff, you know, make mm-hmm. it you know, available to the giver? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, if they don't do that, then they would be kicked off the platform. We have, we're, we're working with a, a pretty loyal, dedicated group of on-the-ground workers, so that's never been a problem. But like, if it were, they wouldn't be able to stay there. But yeah, I mean, everyone, everyone has the internet, and they just use cell phone video to document things. So yeah. So like, even you know, you're saying the poorest country in the world, there's pretty reliable internet. Well, I mean, it can, it can go out. Yeah, it can go out for one or two days, but you can, you can. I mean, like once a week, you could definitely get online. But like as an example, when I was in Malawi, I would go into a remote village, probably an hour outside of the city, and I would be like, everyone around me would have no cell phone, no electricity. They would be like mud huts. Uh, they would make their, they would make their food on on a like a fire, like a campfire on the ground. Like that's how they cooked all their food. Like I was around people like that. And I could I could whip up my my phone and use the three G network in Malawi to Skype my mom and show her like what I'm seeing. So, uh. yeah, interestingly enough, uh, Africa is coming online faster than any other any other place in the world. Uh, pretty much because it's the last place left. Hmm. Huh, that's really wild. That's uh, that's surprising. I mean, I knew it was it was quite pervasive. Um, and and I mean they're they're broadcasting from the Middle East in you know the caves and stuff where they're hunkered down <laughs> all the time. So I guess it's not all that surprising, but uh, interesting. So that the the technology, I, I guess we're at a new crossroads now. I mean that's why this is such a new thing is you couldn't have done this even ten years ago, right? You Correct. Couldn't have yeah. said we're going to show you this girl hearing for the first time. Um, we we could probably take a Polaroid and put it in snail mail, and you'll get it in four <laughs> weeks. Yeah, but this is brand new and exciting. And what's cool to me is, I mean, the enemy loves new technology, and every time there's a uh, leap forward, it seems like the first thing to leverage it is some hideous, uh, you know, it's a new form of human trafficking or mm-hmm. online pornography or whatever, you know, some you know just bondage, sinful thing um, uh, to to keep people in their sins. And it's nice when we take, I mean, this stuff. The, the, the very notion of technology, it belongs to us properly. God in the creation mandate said, and you know, take, run with it. I built the world, you keep on building. And, mm-hmm. and it's, we need to keep on using this cutting edge stuff for his glory and to do good. Uh, so man, very, very awesome. Um, I know we're not quite at an hour, Nathan. I got to bow out. Um, but if you guys uh, have more to discuss, you, no need to end the program. Cool. Um, no, I mean, I think, you know, I really appreciate having you on, Gret. I think it was, um, you know, totally beneficial. We'd love to um, have you back on um, at some other point as well, you know, maybe get updates of what's going on with you and, and um, Donor C and, uh, we're going to link everything on the podcast. Um, so I'll be getting all that information from you so that we can link all this stuff so our listeners can get on and, and hopefully join in on this as well. And so, Zach, I think it's cool that you check this out and something that you're going to talk with your wife about, um, you know, joining up with. So that's definitely uh, awesome as well. Um, so, guys, uh, again, total thanks for uh, both of you, um, all the questions. And we're going to go ahead and sign off now, gentlemen. We just rocked the Casbah. These go to 11.